Hello and welcome to the third episode of Pontificating Across the Pond. In this episode, Som and I talk about the much-discussed uh, Armed Forces Special Operations Division set up by the Indian government. Does it make India stronger and what it means for India's special forces? And from there, we talk about the one issue which has gripped the nation for the past many weeks, the Indian elections, and what our hopes and dreams for Modi 2.0 are. And then an issue very close to Soam's heart. Uh, so I'll let him tell you about it. Yeah, so uh, I know we've been discussing this for a while and uh, we're finally going to get down to it and talk about, uh, you know, the leadership uh, crisis that we're seeing across uh, the globe in the many institutions, organizations and, uh, you know, governments uh, uh, that we have been observing. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of sums up our episode. So let's get started. So there in uh, previous episodes, we discussed pulling out a few leaves from uh, your blog on uh, military history and, uh, you know, geopolitics and the special forces. So specifically in the last uh, couple of months, there has been a lot of uh, conversation um, around the uh, uh, Armed Forces Special Operations Division, which is coming into uh, reality very soon. Uh, obviously, with a lot of the election conversation, uh, this is something that has bypassed a lot of us. Um, and uh, I'd like to be able to shed some light on it. Uh, you have done a post on on the entire uh, you know history of the Special Forces and its way forward. Uh, what is the AFSOD? And I think going forward, uh, we will reference it as the AFSOD. Uh, and like, just what is some of the history uh, behind the formation of this uh, division? Uh, so, two operations in the past couple of years seared the national conscience and brought the Indian Parachute Regiment Special Forces to the fore. Uh, the first was the raid in Myanmar in 2015. And, you know, that was the first opportunity for... Modi to Modi to flex his 56 inch chest. And the big question which lingered then was whether India could or would do this against Pakistan, uh, you know, the big Western neighbor. And India answered that with aplomb by launching the surgical strikes in late September 2016, uh, which now has also been memorialized in the movie Uri. But despite these two operations, uh, and not just for the defense experts and the enthusiasts like me, very little was actually known, even in these circles, about the various special forces of India, uh, where they're deployed, what their operational mandate is, who they actually report to. So that bit was not clear to even many experts. And that was the background for me actually digging up and putting in the research to write the post, which was titled uh, Inside the Special Forces uh, Identity Crisis. And at the heart of the crisis are a couple of issues. Uh, The Indian Army's para-SF battalions are the Indian Army's premier fighting force. Now, a few uh, special forces battalions within this uh, you know, a quote-unquote more special than the others. They're the storied uh, battalions of 1, 3, 9, 10, and 21 para-SF. And a few of these are permanently deputed to serve in active operations in the Northeast and as part of the Northern Command. Uh, but what is also very interesting to note is that personnel from these handful of para-SF battalions also served in a very shadowy group called the Special Group, which whose strength is uh, not available publicly. The part of the shadowy Establishment 22 or the Special Frontier Force, and they fall under the operational command of the Intelligence Bureau and the Research and Analysis Wing. Now, by virtue of the fact that they do not fall under the Ministry of Defense, the Special Frontier Force and the Special Group, uh, which is a part of the SFF, they're never discussed in Parliament. All their missions to date are classified. 
and essentially their missions are uh you know they're not answerable to the parliament because they just report directly to the uh, rndaw and the intelligence bureau so that is the uh you know background behind where the para sf uh, are primarily deployed uh this uneasy alliance between uh the rndaw and the ib having operational command over uniformed indian army personnel is still something the indian army is very uncomfortable with it is yet to be officially enshrined uh, you know in india's uh, special forces doctrine so this uh, the setting up of a armed forces special operations division is only the first step of many which will eventually take us to setting up something along the lines of uh, uh, us socom which is their special operations uh, command right so then um, from my understanding of uh, the way you know socom operates and uh, even the ideology behind the afsod uh, is that for it to be a a, a tri services division um, but from from all the reading and understanding we have had uh, behind the exact uh, objectives of uh, the marcos which is the special forces uh, of the navy um garod which is part of the air force uh, and the para special forces of the army uh they all were uh, initiated for very different uh, reasons uh, very specific to the uh, operational requirements uh, of the uh, you know of the, of their specific forces how do they all come together in this and how how do you see them kind of operating uh, you know strategically as a part of one tri services division i think that will be the biggest challenge in getting this division up and running uh, getting them operational getting them deployed that will be by far the biggest challenge now the marcos uh, marine commandos of the navy they've been extensively deployed in kashmir and they have a fighting history with uh, various para sf battalions so i think that merger will be a uh, lot easier will by no means seamless but uh, will be accepted by both the army and the navy because they have a 20 25 year history of working together now where garud fits into this picture is thus far anybody's guess it is the youngest special uh, forces uh, arm and it's also the most raw it hasn't really been deployed on uh, active missions and when it was set up it was uh, set up exclusively to a protect air force installations with their strategic vital interests and also uh, behind the enemy lines lasing of the target uh, uh, those the, those mold of operations now where that fits in with india's current special forces doctrine is anybody's guess and the bigger challenge for this is actually to get a tri services division up and running and functioning the andaman andaman and nikobar command anc was india's first such uh, experiment and even though the command of uh, the andaman and nikobar command it was supposed to rotate between the army navy and air force the navy has monopolized the command uh, of that particular formation and uh, fears are that the indian army will do the same with respect to this afsod uh, so getting these three services working together which hasn't always happened in the past and it also doesn't have a very rich and deep history of doing so i think that will be the biggest challenge and if i can then come to the next steps what it doesn't do with the setting up of the afsod is place this division under civilian command the first uh, div commander of this division will be an indian army para sf major general major general dingra of uh, one para sf who and you know just a tidbit one para sf also gave the indian army its uh, senior most ever para sf officer who was uh, Lieutenant General P.C. Bharadwaj, who retired as a Vice Chief of Army Staff, so clearly that one battalion has a 
rich history of producing not just great uh, tactical operational leaders but also officers who can then uh, move into the senior leadership positions the so called uh, two and three star generals who can uh, be very effective in new delhi uh, this battalion has also produced those so the next step would be to place this uh, division under civilian intelligence uh, led leadership and that will be the biggest challenge and till we do that till it becomes the sword arm of india's foreign policy and security doctrine till we actually achieve that end goal i think it will be a process this is not an end in itself right but from a clarity perspective uh, on on just how they want to build out uh, this entire division uh, we do have the small element of the uh, national security guard um and uh, i think uh, just as you know citizens of this country in the last uh, you know 10 to 11 years have seen various operations unfold uh, between the nsg between the para special forces uh, i think there is this uh, sense of uh, confusion even at the highest echelons of the military and the government as to what uh, you know an nsg kind of uh, solves for right we saw them being called into action in uh, mumbai uh, during the 2611 attack uh, we also saw them being called into action in pathan kot uh, where does the nsg fit into this entire equation and uh, how are they going to be different from the fsod going forward uh, that's another million dollar question because the birth of the nsg was uh, premised on the fact that the indian army was ineffective in uh, flushing out terrorists and putting an end to sikh extremist uh, terror groups that were operating out of the golden temple uh, the entire nation's conscience is uh, seared with operation blue star uh, right. which was an indian army led operation led with typical bluster that comes with uh, the army uh, tanks actually rolling into the golden temple but what is not as well known is the fact that operation black thunder 1 and 2 four years later conducted by the nsg who were formed in the aftermath of operation blue star these operations were conducted in conjunction with punjab police and in may 1988 they were very successful in flushing out all the remaining terrorists who were holed up in the golden temple uh, almost 400 terrorists and but surrendered to the nsg and 43 were killed and this operation was carried out in full glare of the global media something an operation involving the special group and the para sf just wouldn't permit and the success of the operation lay in the fact that nsg was very well suited to working with the police with the state police the punjab police in this instance because the nsg was set up under the home ministry so coordination between the state government and the center via the home ministry becomes that much easier and also the fact that the nsg was very well suited to using a tactic of patient pressure uh and given the fact that the nsg was created as a target specific force so you know a temple complex like with the akshadham a hijacked plane a hotel building they were essentially built to succeed in close quarters battle and that lay behind their success in 1988 and that also lay behind uh, you know some of their other less heralded successes like uh, storming a hijacked plane in amritsar in 1992 again something which we don't know much about but the hijacking was averted with zero loss of life and the nsg was able to carry that out so where the future for nsg a would lie being continuing being under the home ministry and b becoming the premier force for targeting anti terror operations in the country outside of jammu and kashmir and northeast india that is where their future should lie because that is what they have been trained to do and many people will point to the fact that oh the operations in mumbai were in 2008 were not fully successful they took so long in getting there but 
that was due to the fact that they were present only in Manesar and they had to be airlifted to Bombay. With them having more operational nodes, I think they will be able to tackle terror threats a lot more effectively. And an el- and embedding an element of uh, the Air Force with the NSG will be very important. I don't think we, the nation can stomach seeing the NSG being transported in best buses to a target location. That is something we just we just shouldn't see ever again. They need to have their own air element embedded with them and they should focus on becoming India's terror fighting force on Indian soil. Right. So then that rules them out from being uh, the first choice in a you know, IC-814 situation in Kandahar, right? So that's where uh, the AFSOD um, comes back into the uh, equation and, uh, you know, just just this entire split that we are seeing wherein the NSG is uh, tactically trained to manage a situation such as a hijacking, but will not be called into action because of, you know, just geographical jurisdiction or potentially even you know, because that is something that will lie under the PMO uh, and not the Home Ministry. Uh, so from a training and, uh, you know, tactical move perspective, uh, will the AFSOD be really prepared for, uh, you know, such uh, operations? Uh, currently, I would have to say no, because still now the special forces have not been deployed for what their true purpose is. They're meant to be force multipliers. They're meant to be force multipliers on steroids. And their readiness for strategic, political, military missions is most important. Now, combing and clearing missions for which the para-SF in the valley are largely used for, those tasks should increasingly be delegated to the Ghatak platoons. So the two sides to this are... Obviously, the NSG will remain under the Home Ministry and will not be deployed on foreign soil, a bit like the CIA, FBI, Division of Labor uh, in the US. But the other side of the coin is that the Indian Special Forces also have to be a lot better trained to give these sorts of, to take these missions to their logical endpoint. And currently, they don't have enough training or they haven't been deployed in enough missions where they can actually test these out. Now, India, unlike the US, will never have an operational mandate as vast as the globe. We will, Indian, the Indian special forces will only be deployed uh, in and around our sphere of influence. So that includes the Indian Ocean, uh, where the Marcos assume a huge role and they become very important. They might perhaps be deployed in the future in Afghanistan once the U.S. pulls out and if the Afghan government leans towards India, does India provide a boots on the presence, uh, boots on the ground presence in Afghanistan? Because till now, the Indian army has been very conscious of sending in its personnel in civilian clothing. They've almost always lived out of embassy quarters. But the fact that India has a handful of consulates spread across the length and breadth of Afghanistan, uh, you know, does the Indian Army in the future see fit to send in uniform personnel? And by uniformed, obviously, the connotation being serving our Indian Army personnel. They won't, of course, be in the Indian Army uniform. But do they see fit to deploy the Indian Army for what it's meant to be deployed on, on foreign soil? So those will be the next questions will, which this command will have to answer and uh, how it functions under the National Security Advisor, Ajit Doval, who I think in all likelihood will be confirmed as the NSA for the next five years as well. How the AFSOD is able to take direction, dictation from the NSA will be the most important guiding factor for this division because Many experts have pointed to the fact that because it has been set up as a division and not a command, and hence the uh, commander of this division will be a two-star general and not a three-star general. How, lo- how loud will the voice of this general really be? 
that is a question that can be answered only by placing it under civilian leadership if it's placed directly under the nsa which again reports only to the pmo then it becomes a very effective force uh very effective force to uh deployed to the ends that it was meant to that is strategic and political military missions versus if it continues to remain under the uh indian army specifically or even slightly broadly the indian armed forces uh we might never have the capability to project that power outwards outside of india's borders right so then is this starting to sound more like uh you know another step uh by modi to kind of centralize uh, some of the decision making around the armed forces kind of strengthening the entire you know integrated defense staff to be able to uh take directions you know directly from the pmo uh from the nsa which which is really working with the pmo uh on on such uh, missions uh, or is this just a logical step ahead uh for the armed forces in the country i think it's more a logical step uh but definitely a step which should have been taken many years ago if not a few decades ago with the onset of the kashmir insurgency but uh it's most definitely a move to centralize decision making in the pmo and with the nsa and it does raise a few questions uh of course of the fact that an nsa is an appointee and uh, you know today we are fortunate enough to have a really capable uh, appointee who has a very strong vision as to where india's uh, security interests lie and he has a very methodical determined way of going about achieving those we might not be as lucky in getting a really st- strong nsa once ajit dover leaves so right. it's all the more important that this becomes institutionalized that this becomes uh, a part of the furniture of the north and south blocks because the disconnect between the bureaucracy and the army is it's as wide as a valley it has existed for so many decades and it has only widened uh, every succeeding year uh, you know the armed forces feel that their standing in the hierarchy is continually being degraded uh, the fact they resent the fact that a babu is uh, in charge of uh, dispensing the defense budget so to counter all these uh, a strong nsa and institutionalizing a lot of these a lot of this decision making in the pmo will be very important and uh, you know not just uh, india's electoral campaign which was very presidential uh, even the post and the office of the prime minister with moves like these will become very presidential he will assume a bigger role and he will the pmo he or she in the future will be the de facto commander in uh, chief of the indian armed forces that is uh, the direction which uh, this move will take us in and i can't say that it's uh, an unwelcome move uh like i said it's never a bad time to make a good move it's uh, definitely delayed but it's still a good first step in ensuring that uh, there is a much tighter integration with the already existing strategic forces command uh now the nsa is the conduit between the military and the pmo he will act as the de facto head of this uh division uh so it's not a bad uh, move at all as long as this division is able to in the long run get its own uh, get its own aviators get their own choppers have their own methods of insertion they essentially shouldn't have to depend or call upon any of the other arms of the indian armed forces or any of the other units or regiments uh, within the indian army that would be when this command or this division is successful that is the end point that we should uh, be hoping this move towards right right so on on that note we'll move on to uh, uh, our next segment but uh, i think we will need to revisit this as uh, the fsod uh, is is kind of uh, formalized and 
uh, we start seeing a lot more movement in understanding how it's going to be uh, structured what decisions what uh, you know range of operations are uh, going to fall under their purview um so i hope to see a lot more writing in that space from you and uh, i think we can look at snippets where we kind of cover the progress of uh, the formation of this division uh, over the next couple of months definitely i think that's something this is a theme we will keep coming back to and for the benefit of our listeners we'll also link uh, the article the national identity 14 which talks about this special forces identity crisis and dates back to about two and a half years uh, we'll link that and uh, the article on doval darbar which is uh, you know essentially 5500 words on what the empowered office of the nsa means in uh, today's uh, security environment so we'll link those two and uh, we'll keep revisiting this and happy to move on to talking about the indian elections now somso in the previous segment and also in our previous episode we spoke about the need to talk about india's election and now that a government has come back into power with the largest majority we've seen in years a single party crossing 300 seats i just wanted to understand your reaction what your expectations are from the government and especially the crucial last two pe- last two years of this government where at least the press that you and i are used to reading uh, there was so much talk of polarization and how the government has fallen short in every single area of development be it the economy or other crucial sectors but most importantly the social discourse so what are your hopes for this government now that we do have this thumping majority and what are the issues that this government should be focusing on for the next 5 years so obviously uh, like every news channel out there uh, proclaimed after the election results that it wasn't a big surprise uh, though obviously many wanted to uh, kind of disagree with that entire uh, they weren't completely on board with uh, some of the exit polls before uh, but i think uh, like you mentioned i mean now we rather kind of talk about the way forward and uh, i think polarization um, on the streets in people's minds uh, is something that has uh, become very real uh, you mentioned the last two years i think it kind of uh, reached its head in the in the last 2 uh, 3 months during the elections where everyone seemed to only talk about that including the candidates campaigning uh, across the country and i think that's where uh, things have started to get uh, extremely worrying um, in previous elections you know the the conversation was always about the failures of the incumbent government um and the expected failures of the uh, opposition who was uh, trying to remove the incumbent and it was really about uh, policy battles it was really about uh, turf battles that's what a lot of the election conversations have been in the past uh, while they haven't been uh, the most uh, productive conversations or they haven't always spoken about uh, how you know a certain party or a candidate is looking at the future of a, of their government uh, it's still in its entirety had a sense of progressiveness about it which was completely lost this time so some of the conversation off mm-hmm. the street really right and from the street i mean from the cafes and offices and you know from the rickshaw guys i've been speaking to so you know across across classes um, i i think the concern is how mu- how much more uh, potent can uh, the ruling party get with uh, you know all their thoughts around uh, you know class and caste and religion uh, and how much are they going to use this in day to day polity um when you look at the elevation of uh, uh, candidates like uh, you know pragya singh thakur and sakshi maharaj uh, to allow them to fight i mean obviously sakshi maharaj has been uh, fighting elections for many years now but it it also comes down to the things that he has been saying uh, in during in the lead up to these elections uh, including his famous quote uh, you know back in uh, i think it was march where he spoke about there being no elections after 2024 uh, because uh, you know the uh, he believes and i'm sure <laughs> thousands of his followers or maybe hundreds of thousands of his followers yeah. believe that's what's going to happen and i think that itself is scary right 
Pragya Singh Thakur obviously was allowed a completely free reign to say whatever she wanted. And I think it's all about the sense on the streets of how this is okay, right? Today you have people having conversations about, you know, politicians are saying these things, should we examine it? And it's worrying. And while, yes, it is free speech and everyone should be allowed to think, but I think there are boundaries and I think there are, uh, there is a certain discourse in this country which is, uh, severely shifting towards uh, pushing away matters of state and matters of uh, the economy that are important and really focusing on this. Uh, you know, I feel that some of uh, the liberals on the street or some of the indifferent citizens on the street also, the fact that they are just focusing on this uh, defeats the purpose of what the country should be uh, uh, aiming towards. Um, I think it also, you know, the second point that I really wanted to talk about was uh, the opposition, right? It's it's just uh, so shocking, yeah. the lack of opposition uh, that we have today. Um, you know, I mean, back in uh, the early 2000s when the UPA uh, stormed into uh, the Lok Sabha, uh, they beat uh, the Vajpayee government and, uh, you know, the uh, NDA back then, which was completely unexpected, but they beat them talking about uh, the economy, talking about uh, promises that were not held up, even though it was a fairly successful uh, Vajpayee government. Uh, and even back in uh, 2014, when BJP spoke about all the failures of the Manmohan Singh-led Congress government uh, and UPA, uh, I think that was a great indication of just, uh, you know, how an opposition is supposed to perform, uh, which is to, uh, at its basis, highlight the failures of the uh, ruling government and at its best, uh, be able to uh, uh, talk a progressive uh, language themselves. And this opposition seems to be completely lacking in that. It's lacking in leadership. Uh, it's lacking in any kind of yeah. uh, game plan. And that doesn't bode well for any country. Uh, and in our case, and in our the times that we are living in, uh, it further scares me. And I think lastly, uh, before we kind of understand some of your uh, expectations and concerns, uh, I think the number one thing is just the conversation on the streets. Uh, everything and as educated, lesser educated uh, citizens uh, across the class divide, uh, the fact that we are not talking about uh, the economy, we're not talking about social justice, um, we're not talking about uh, how we can become, uh, you know, a far more powerful economy that is respected across uh, the world, or even talking about local issues for that matter, um, and instead talking about uh, why Rahul Gandhi is a clown and uh, why Modi is going to become the next Hitler. <laughs> I feel it's just a self-defeating you know, slide that we are uh, uh, you know, yeah. kind of skidding down. Uh, so uh, so to take off from what you said, that the fact that we don't speak enough about the economy, I think that's the one area that I definitely want to touch upon because, like you said, the opposition is in absolute disarray. They don't even have 10% of the seats in the Lok Sabha and the famous adage that a civilized democracy depends on the consent of the losers. Uh, they've definitely lost. They've given up their consent in uh, double quick time. But what a civilized democracy also depends yeah. on is a strong principled opposition. And I don't think we have that. And I think for as long as you've known me, you've also known that I'm a uh, conservative and especially at that of fiscal conservative. So a lot of the moves that this current government made in its first incarnation from 2014 to 2019, I actually didn't have a problem with those. Uh, so obviously demonetization was a big problem. But apart from that, the fiscal belt tightening that this government focused on at the cost of uh, impeding our growth, that is actually not something I took uh, offense with. I welcome the fact that this government was focused on running a tight ship, but where I diverged with their view was that they should be focusing on A, structural reforms, and B, actually cutting down their own expenditure. How they tried to bridge the fiscal deficit was by taxing the middle and merchant classes a lot more. So taking from that uh, theme, my hopes for the next five years are that this government focuses a lot more on structural reforms, not policies and schemes and last mile uh, 
delivery uh, priorities that they bring out to ensure that they get more votes in uh, 2024, but actually structural reform in labor, in manufacturing, and most of all, India's banking system. So just to pick at a few numbers, the banking hole, uh, the so-called non-performing assets that are floating around in India's uh, banking sector, it's about 10 trillion rupees. And that's 10% of our economy or half the size of the last union budget. As long as this government does not fix that hole at the center of our economy to free up the assets so the banks can start lending more, I don't think the economy will really power forward. India, by sheer virtue of the fact that we have so many people, India will always grow, at least for the next 20 years. 4% would be the base growth, even if government was to bring in, uh, you know, either shocking decisions like demonetization or implement the GST very poorly. India will still continue to grow. But what is required to turbocharge our economy is to fix the banking system. And a very, a very small example of where the banking sector's loans have soured would be the power sector. Uh, in just one sector, India, the Indian banking sector has a whole worth about 1.7 lakh crores. And a lot of these bad loans are tied up in the in thermal power plants. Uh, and the reason for that is that a lot of these projects were set up without coal linkage, which then goes back to the Supreme Court's decision in 2014 to uh, cancel all the coal block allocations, the lack of power purchase agreements. So there's no forward market for these uh, thermal power plants to actually sell the electricity. And the fact that because of cheap capital, the developers bid very aggressively. So just one sector, because of these, uh, these slew of issues, has a hole to the extent of 1.7 lakh crores. So to fix a hole which is 10 trillion rupees, I think a lot of strong decisions to be need to be taken. And number one would be to... Uh, just uh, start merging these uh, bad loan books, but also on the operational side to reduce the number of public sector banks and hand in hand with that, also reduce the number of public sector undertakings that this uh, government actually increased in their last five years. Uh, and the Niti Aayog chairman recently came out and said that the government may be looking to shut down up to 46 public sector undertakings. Uh, I think that needs to be done within the first year or two and not uh, disinvestment or shutting down like the Indian government usually does, which is just selling the government stake to LIC, which is also government owned and it's taxpayers money at uh, stake in LIC too. They should actually conduct a competitive bidding process and failing that just liquidate these assets. And Air India is a prime example of how the government tried to have its cake and eat it too. They had so many strings attached in the sale process that uh, all the willing buyers who were looking to submit bids, they were scared away because the government had certain regulations in place as to whether you could fire tenured employees, you can't fire an employee who served more than 10 years. So these strings need to be removed. And uh, a very strong leadership structure, especially at the RBI, more than the finance ministry, needs to be brought in. And it's something this government has done very well in our uh, national security apparatus and our foreign affairs policy moves. Uh, they've elevated... Uh, civil servants to the top jobs in both these spheres. Our former foreign secretary, uh, Jay Shankar, is now foreign affairs minister. And uh, to maintain Ajit Doval's parity with his uh, former sparring partner from the civil services, Ajit Doval himself has been elevated to a cabinet rank uh, as the national security advisor. So I would expect uh, some of these really tough moves to be taken uh, within the RBI itself. And We've already lost a banker that India didn't deserve, Raghuram Rajan, and we lost his successor too. So my only hope is that they bring in a strong personality at the RBI uh, and just go about fixing this hole at the center of our economy. I think uh, once credit starts flowing, 
uh, we wouldn't be sat here talking about uh, economic growth or the fact that we have so many people unemployed. I think those are downstream issues which will fix themselves once we get the credit flowing. Right. And Uday, do you think uh, Nirmala Sitaraman is the woman for this uh, job? I mean, obviously, everyone was expecting uh, uh, stockholders <laughs> of the past, Amit Shah, to uh, be taking this role, but he's going to be broking, brokering <laughs> yeah. very different deals. Uh, with, uh, but uh, do you think she's, she's the one to uh, be the firm hand? Yeah, uh, another option was the chartered accountant of the past, uh, Piyush Goel. But, uh, you know, I think we just <laughs> right. don't have the technocrats in our economic decision making, which we have been blessed with for the past uh, 15, 20 years. Uh, we just don't have that anymore. So I think Nirmala Sitaraman was uh, probably the best pick of... Uh, the senior ministers who could have been given such a plum ministry. In many ways, it's possibly more important than the home ministry itself. I would have really liked had they reached out to someone like a Raghuram Rajan. I know Raghuram Rajan is out of the picture because of his uh, visceral criticism of this government. But uh, failing appointing a figure like a Raghuram Rajan or in years gone by, Manmohan Singh, uh, or Geeta Gopinathan, Urjit Patel. I think this is uh, the best appointee that we could have expected. But uh, the fact that we can still appoint a really technocratic RBI governor as opposed to a RSS Pracharak, I think that is uh, an institution that really needs to be uh, strengthened. So for now, I think we should just wait and watch whether Nirmala Sitaraman is the right woman. But... uh, she starts with a clean slate and I think we should give her that breathing room to uh, sort out uh, some of these toxic assets in our economy. Right. And her first test comes up in July uh, with the budget. Um, any any uh, last uh, hopes or dreams for this uh, government over uh, the next five I years? I think within the economic sphere, just cutting down taxes for the middle class would be very welcome. I think uh, 30% is, uh, even for the top income earning bracket, is quite high because the base for that uh, 30% uh, income tax is quite low. It's actually not that high. So I think purely from a selfish uh, reason, I would like to see that move. And I know taxes are never rolled back in this country, but uh, I think doing away with the long-term capital gains tax on uh, equity investments, that would be another welcome move. But if the government does continue on its uh, fiscal belt tightening regime, I'm happy to pony up uh, these extra levies, this extra tax, as long as the government doesn't spend it on largest to large economic largest on the rural areas it doesn't dole it out in terms of freebies uh, to win votes if the government spends this money to fix some of the holes in the economy i'm happy to pony up even more money great and uh, i think my wish would be that uh, this government waits till 2024 to start campaigning uh, <laughs> for the next uh, elections I think uh, that's where I would It be, might uh, be difficult given that the um, earlier government was derailed from following their uh, avowed path of uh, fiscal discipline and economic uh, well man- good management by the Bihar and the UP election. So that might be asking for too much. True. <laughs> True. So um, until the next... Uh, budget and until the campaigning begins again i'm sure we'll kind of come back to this uh, uh, topic uh, more than a couple of times and uh, so let's move on to the segment we both have been waiting yeah absolutely for a while moving on to uh, our final segment for this episode we've been building up to this one for a while i'm quite excited uh, but before i give any introduction of uh, what we're really going to talk about, uh, Uday, could you first of all tell me why was Teresa May crying last week? <laughs> I think that's the million dollar question that everyone even here in the UK was trying to answer because of two simple reasons. A, from the day she has 
moved into 10 Downing Street, she never showed any emotion. People started calling her Maybot, also because she would continually bang her head against the same wall like a broken toy, which couldn't move around the wall, which couldn't find another way past the wall. It would just keep banging its head on the wall again and again and again, but it would not defeat her. She would not show any hint of emotion, and she would just keep soldiering on. And finally, the day that she resigned. was the day that she actually showed emotion so it was it life for her came of complete circle in 10 downing street she went in as maybot came out as the crying lady and many are calling her the worst british prime minister uh, i think since the palaces of westminster were set up so i think that's the question everyone has been trying to answer the day she broke into tears right so kind of just going into Uh, what's been happening on your side of the pond? I mean, obviously, uh, in the segment, uh, we want to talk about uh, leadership, uh, how how it gets broken so easily, how it can be uh, instrumental in building great institutions, countries, and organizations. Uh, with just a couple of examples that we are seeing around us. So, uh, what what has been uh, happening in the UK? We all know about Brexit, but you've been seeing it up close. Uh, how broken is the Brexit? Ah, uh, yeah, I've been seeing it. fairly up close because my office is right across the river from westminster so my afternoon walks uh, and runs are amongst uh, a plethora of uh, protesters they could be protesting anything from climate change to uh, theresa may and uh, the one thing which is uh, the one lasting legacy of her time in 10 uh, downing has been the fact that she has paralyzed the nation the nation is in a flux in a trance because it can't find a solution to this intransigent problem and the way she set up her premiership was that the, she said brexit means brexit and to so many people in fact to everyone who read that and heard that and saw that it meant that she was wedding herself to a hard brexit if negotiations with the eu uh, turned sour and what a hard brexit would mean was at the end of march uh, 2019 uh, britain would uh, exit the eu without having a deal in place to govern movement of labor capital and goods now that would have been chaotic to the economy and i think as the end of march drew nearer politicians and people realized that they just couldn't afford a hard brexit and the fact that theresa may started out at the other end of the spectrum saying brexit means brexit and uh, as her premiership uh, unfolded she kept coming up with a more conciliatory stance she always kept coming back to parliament with uh, basically the same draft of uh, a negotiated uh, brexit but with just a few minor tweaks hoping to pass it uh, by through the parliament and in the uk uh, the parliament is sovereign so such legislation has to be passed uh, by a clear majority in the house of commons uh, but that just wouldn't happen because the fact that she had this sort sort of dog whistle at the beginning of her reign saying the brexit means brexit and then she was reneging on it so many mps just didn't support her and the tory party is also a very curious phenomena uh, they're not averse to backstabbing and they're not averse to mid term challenges to the prime minister the prime minister here in this country more so than any other is just the first among equals uh, has no special rights apart from getting to live in 10 downing uh can be brought down at any time uh by members of their own party in fact the first no confidence motion against theresa may came from within her own party by jacob rees mogg who has his own legion of hard brexiteer supporters so it was a very curious example in how to systematically break down an institution she paralyzed the whole nation and the parliament with the one overriding issue of brexit over which there was never any solution 
and uh, in the last session the parliamentarians were sitting in parliament twiddling their thumbs because they ran out of uh, talking points to discuss and they ran out of legislation to pass because brexit was the only agenda and they just couldn't come to an agreement on that so i think it's a great example of how not to do things and if you commit yourself to something especially in public life you have to go out and meet those short term targets that is the one takeaway i hope theresa may takes away from this and i also hope the conservative party takes away from this because there the previous uh, conservative prime minister david cameron wedded his old premiership to the question of brexit and once he lost the referendum he had to vacate office so i think that is the lesson from this whole episode and saga you make promises you should be prepared to keep them and along the way you should have short term goal posts that you keep delivering against right so do you think it was broadly a failure of one person or uh, was it one person who could really build a consensus around this or um was it just uh, systemic i think more systemic no one person would have been able to build consensus around this because the question in the referendum was worded so vaguely and uh, there was such differing views on what it would actually translate to on the ground would it mean a fisheries union would it mean a common labor pool would it affect the city of london uh, and the money that they manage for uh, you know for the continent would it affect the trades which are routed uh, via the city of london onto the continent of europe none of these questions were answered before brexit and the only right. thing that the bureaucracy and the government had to uh, come up with a plan for was a brexit uh, but they were just so overconfident they were just so sure that uh, the people would never vote to leave that they didn't lay down any preparatory groundwork to actually exit uh, the union and when it came down to it at the end of march uh, brexit had to be postponed so it's now postponed uh, till about thanksgiving so the new incoming prime minister for which uh, which itself is a tory party psychodrama there are about 12 to 15 contenders uh, who have thrown their uh, hat in the ring to be the next prime minister the agenda will be to ensure that the britain leaves the european union with or without a deal otherwise i think uh, the tory party is broken they've already they've been routed in the european elections so is the labor party and i think insurgent parties will then assume center stage and in opinion polls the brexit party and the liberal democrats uh, they are poised to be the largest parties if an election were to be called right now which is why the conservative party is not going to call an election now and they have to uh, vote in a leader of their party who will be prime minister who will ensure that a brexit one way or another is delivered otherwise the party and the institution of the conservative party will be decimated for a generation right so clearly leadership failures across the board uh, and uh, i know there's another example uh, close to where you are uh, <laughs> which we uh, also wanted to uh, uh, talk about so i mean a couple of months ago i think you had gone visiting uh, tell us about that yeah so uh, i was at old trafford manchester united's uh, home ground and you know our spiritual home uh, so i was there yeah. a couple of uh, weeks months ago for an under 23 game and why i wanted to go in was because it would be a much more intimate setting i had a seat pitch side but also the fact that i would see this great institution do what it was what it is renowned for and what it has always done very well bring through the youth but i think the trip uh, old trafford itself was slightly disappointing given that uh, i've also been fortunate enough to visit a few other citadels of uh, football camp nou the uh, stadium in uh, rio i've seen these i also went to uh, bayern munich's allianz arena so i was quite shocked when i visited uh, old trafford that there was physical decay on the ground uh, the turf was being eaten away over the past many months uh, by rats there was moss and dampness in the around the edges of the ground and that got me thinking whether it was a manifestation of the 
continual failure and leader failure of leadership at the top rung top rung of the club that they haven't been able to successfully replace Alex Ferguson and does it go back a few years when the glazers actually bought the club and started treating it as a cash cow to service their debt and purely as an asset to be monetized so very troubled times to be a united fan here in the uk with city winning the premier league and liverpool winning the champions league uh, there's just no place to show our faces anymore but i very i'm very interested in uh, hearing your thoughts from afar whether this is just a failure of being able to bring in a new manager or whether there is structural decay at the club because it has been governed purely for the benefit of enriching the glazers and servicing their debt um yeah i think uh, i was quite shocked when you told me about the state old trafford is in i mean obviously you're reading about it in a lot of places but it always sounds exag- exaggerated uh, because when you're watching a match on television everything looks uh, great but uh, except for the football uh, for the last <laughs> few years <laughs> and uh, but but you're right i mean um, uh as far as the dk is concerned it it obviously extends beyond uh, the state of the uh, facilities um i think alex ferguson and uh, uh david gill uh, when he was uh, uh managing the finances and the transfer transfers at the club uh were a bit of a uh, you know cover up act uh, for the true face of the glazers uh they since the day they uh came into united um i remember the protests back then i remember watching bbc and not really understanding uh why this was a problem because uh, you know there were other clubs who were getting foreign owners and it seemed like a good move but uh, obviously as things unraveled we realized that they were not one of the foreign owners who brought in money or brought in any kind of vision um it was really self servicing and uh, i think the, the the problem has been that after ferguson has left uh and uh, after david gill also left uh what became very clear very soon was that uh, uh this was a very precarious balancing act uh without the financial independence that united gave its manager and its uh, financial teams and its commercial teams um what was left was uh, a, a man who was allowed to uh, run the club uh, in, in the form of uh, you know woodward who was who's really lacking in any kind of vision from the top or his his own uh, i think even the way he structures uh, i mean except for the way he structures his commercial deals uh, i think he has really given very little back to the club um even the kind of uh, partners he brings on board seems to be all over the place uh, i'll i'll not be too surprised if um, big bazaar is something <laughs> of the ilk yeah. uh, something of the ilk makes a uh, united partner anytime soon so again there is no vision in even the selection of the kind of commercial partners we're bringing on board uh, except for the fact that uh, it just uh, increases the base of uh, uh, consumers for the club as far as uh, managerial decisions uh, are concerned i think managers who have been hired since uh, ferguson have left have all been uh, uh, restricted uh, in either their thinking or their own uh, understanding of how united should be run because there was no dictate from the top as to Uh, what kind of a club united wanted to be in a post ferguson era uh if you spoke about manchester city and liverpool classic examples uh, of clubs uh, that were taken out uh, taken over by foreign owners uh, built with a singular vision uh, pretty much from day one uh, i think city took a little time uh, to, to figure out the people they needed but uh, they brought in the people required to set the base for pep guardiola to come in and build this team that he has uh liverpool i think from day one were very clear about uh, the kind of football they wanted to play uh, and therefore the kind of uh, uh, players they brought in i mean right from uh, you know managers like brendan rodgers who kind of i, I believe set the uh, base for the football that liverpool plays today um they were always very consistent with those decisions they allowed their managers the time to uh, build out their philosophy and only when they realized that the manager had gone a certain distance Uh, would they move on to the next uh, they did the same with players uh, and i think that's what united is missing uh, we are trying to go the it, you know it feels like they were trying to go the real madrid way of the mid 2000s and late 90s mm-hmm. uh, which was the galacticos way uh, where they were galacticos managers they were galacticos players 
but with very little to kind of uh, you know thread all of it together uh, i think there uh, with the kind of star power that real madrid had in those years they managed to power through and win the few trophies that they did uh, but united's galacticos are not even uh, the best players unfortunately yeah. these big commercial names you and know and they uh, charge a lot of money for sitting yeah. on the bench yeah and it's and it's insane right i mean you you talk about the money we we have a couple of players on our rolls who have inflated our, uh, our budgets beyond belief uh, so you know i i think what's in a sense of or in a state of disrepair is uh, just a lack of uh, vision across the board i mean we can't expect managers to come and uh, you know wave a magic wand uh, mourinho tried his best in the two years that he was here um while i have very little sympathy for his efforts and his overall uh, demeanor as a manager but then that's what you get uh, with a man like him uh, but uh, even now i mean what do you think about this new setup uh, that uh, you know woodward and the glazers are trying to put in place bringing the old boys back i was just going to come to that the fact that the lack of our the lack of vision is so deep at united that instead of looking forward we're continuously looking backwards we subscribe to this uh, brand of exceptionalism that manchester united is the biggest job in england it's the biggest job in world football but how we go about filling these key vital positions is keep looking back to our past uh tapping an old boys network a lot of whom actually have no technical expertise they haven't been schooled under great tactical thinkers ferguson was a great motivational thinker but it was always his uh number twos it was always his lieutenants who were delivering the sort of tactical uh tactical nose that we needed at the european level be it uh, steve mclaren much reviled as he was as the england manager or be it mike feelan in the later years but in between carlos curos who got the best out of yeah. united in europe reached two consecutive champions league finals got the best out of cristiano ronaldo carlos tevez uh, and wayne uh, rooney uh, i don't think we can continuously look backwards in order to move forwards and even solsha's first few press conferences even after the first eight or nine wins he just constantly kept saying you know this is united and this is how we do things here uh, this is manchester united and we must win and he went so far as to say that we should be competing for the title next season which is definitely not going to happen and now the realism has set in and these goals are being retweaked to finishing in the top 4 making it to you know hopefully winning the europa league but this backward looking stance that the entire leadership has that we can just invoke a past and we'll be successful in today's day and age will just not happen and i'll be much happier if this uh, old boy network is entirely ditched and we go in for a radical solution like total football or bring in an entire apparatus from even a mid ranking club like leicester i think that would be a much more uh, radical way of going about reshaping united's fortunes yeah and and that uh, you know rankles even more when you look at clubs like uh, leicester you look at clubs like wolves um, and uh, you know southampton at least till a couple of years ago and uh, swansea uh, um for the longest time uh, well managed uh, prudent um and with a clear vision of the kind of football that they want to see and therefore uh, you know the managers they want to bring in and the players that they want to bring in um i i i think uh, what's what's obviously scary is uh, the bubble that uh, the management and the leadership are in um you know when i i think uh, back to uh, some of the decisions i've seen in um, in organizations i've worked in uh, teams i've worked in all the way from you know school and college i think that has been one thing that always keeps uh, coming back to me and something i'm always fearful of uh, doing myself in you know teams that i have managed or hopefully will continue to manage in the coming years is just not to be in this bubble right and yeah. not to be able to uh, listen to people out there your stakeholders your fans uh you know other clubs uh, 
even the pundits maybe once in a while you know yeah. it really doesn't hurt uh, or just read the you know uh, guardian uh, blog or listen to the podcast you know there's a lot of uh, sensible stuff being said there and if woodward is able to step out of this bubble of his uh, listen to what people outside of the club are saying and i think uh, even the uh, uh, current management i mean from solshire to uh, mike feelin uh, and with potentially rio ferdinand uh, coming into the you know uh, technical director or the uh, head of recruitment roles um, i think even all the way down to the new kit uh, you know which has which is as a callback uh, to the uh, uh, 99 champions league yeah. wins, i think the f- i think we really uh, while we need to celebrate the past uh, like liverpool does uh, with uh, you know having some of their greats as their ambassadors uh, i think that's the kind of celebration of the past we need to do uh, and of old traditions that we need to do uh, but like every prudent club out there uh, we need to move ahead i mean from footballing to how we look at the business uh, to how we nurture players and how we sell them and how we get you know hopefully rid of alexis sanchez you know so <laughs> yeah and I, i think i think yeah step ahead yeah iri yeah. parallels to uh, what india's own uh, grand old party needs to do rid itself of its uh, top level uh, rid itself of its so called star and stop evoking uh, and invoking the past which was glorious because the ideas and the way they go about their business is the so out of date we wouldn't belabor the indian election angle anymore but i think that's a good ending note yeah it's a truly world class transition also back to <laughs> <laughs> clearly our favorite topic over the last few weeks uh, yeah. uh, but yes i, I think just uh, in a closing note i would like to say that uh, unlike united the congress doesn't have a graceful opposition okay <laughs> you know uh, and they must must be aware of this before uh, uh, you know the, the kind of uh, slide that they are on yeah. and um, anyway i'm hoping for uh, something miraculous come this august uh, when the premiership uh, begins again and united comes back and before that i hope to see some kind of this uh, you know vision playing out in the transfer market yeah and also in the uh, europa league because that campaign might be starting in all likelihood before the start of the premier league oh, so yes. uh hopefully Forgotten the good moves <laughs> yeah uh here's hoping the good moves in the transfer market and uh, all the institutions that we love and admire are in a much stronger footing by august and on that uh, freudian slip by uday uh and clearly a prophecy of uh, maybe what's to come in india with a 100 year uh, bjp rule uh, we sign off uh, on this episode and we will be back in the next uh, two weeks for sure so until then we'll catch you all soon